One of the greatest, most piercing sorrows that every Christian must bear in this life is the painful sorrow that certain people in their lives aren't saved. It is enough of a sorrow to know that the masses of humanity are on the broad path to destruction. And we see that in our culture, in our nation, in our world. But how much more tangibly heartbroken we are when we see unbelievers who are close to us refusing the Gospel. Unbelievers who share a connection with us who interact often with us, or who even develop personal bonds with us in this life. The reality from Scripture is that Jesus is the only way and the truth and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. And without repentant faith in Him, a person remains guilty and will be condemned before the judge to spend eternity in hell. That's biblical reality. And it is very rightly sorrowful to us. And it's sorrowful on on many fronts. For one thing, it's rightly sorrowful because many of these unbelievers in our lives are people we truly love. And we have relationships with. Uh, Many times there are are family members who are unbelievers. A parent. A son or a daughter. A brother or a sister. Some other relative. There are also friends that we make in this life who are unbelievers and and don't share the faith that we have. Uh, Some from our upbringing. Some we meet in the community. Some we know at work or some other function. And though we know they are objectively enemies of God, there's a sense in which we feel genuine affection for these unique individuals. They're made in His image. And those image-bearing qualities are still preserved by God's common grace. We can acknowledge they are sinners while still appreciating the unique ways God fashioned them in their personalities, in their temperaments, and in their talents, and even in their common interests, and in the way they relate to us. It is these things we love about them, and even admire about them, that make us long for them to be reconciled to God, and to become all that He made for them to be. Uh, There's another sense in which it is sorrowful, not just because we love the unbelievers in our lives, but it's also sorrowful because their opposition to the truth, even to us, cuts deep. Uh, Even the closest unbelievers in our lives, uh, when pressed, they're ultimately opponents to the faith that we proclaim. And that hurts. I want you to take a moment today. And I want you to think of the the unbelievers 
in your life. Oftentimes, I think we, we block out the, the sorrow that we feel toward these individuals, and perhaps we just want to maintain a relationship with them without really considering the state that each of us are in spiritually. That, that certainly is easier. And we prefer just not to think too much about it because the pain of the spiritual separation is, is hard to bear. Another reason we might block out the thought of their lostness is because if we're being honest, we're so easily tempted to give up on the possibility of their salvation. Many of us, if we're honest, have indeed maybe even given up on certain people ever believing. We see them so set in their ways. We see them so convinced in their mind regarding what they believe and what they refuse to believe. We see them so hardened toward the Christian faith for so long that we just sort of think it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen for that person. Not this particular person. Not this group of people in my life. Not someone from this generation and we get these these doubts in our minds and if we allow it to fester it it becomes unbelief in God's power to save we all deal with this and God in his incredible kindness and accommodation to us has given us comfort in his word for this great sorrow that we feel toward unbelievers in our lives. And He gives us solid ground to stand on so that we won't despair. Our passage today is a precious set of verses for the believer to consider. And I truly hope that every aching heart in this room will see it. That's why, again, I have it on the screen. I, I these are precious verses, I think worthy of memory, memorizing. And I've been pondering them for a while. In fact, I almost pre- taught them <laughs> multiple times, but I, I just, there's so much there that I, I want to do them justice. I don't have a detailed outline, but I broke the passage into two parts that I saw based on the insights that they give, and these are the two headings I have for this passage. Uh, Number one, we will consider what God can do. I'm sorry, the opposite. The first part is what we can do. The second part, what God can do. So with regard to unbelievers in our lives, opponents, first, what we can do Second, what God can do. And to know both of these things correctly is really to be liberated in our thinking. If you know what you can do and the limits of what you can do, you can rest in the fact that you've done all that God requires. And if you know correctly what God can do, you can rest in His sovereign ability. You can rest in His power 
to save. Uh, these, these verses reveal both. And while these verses don't diminish the sorrow that we feel, and it doesn't go away, they act as sort of a balm for our hearts. So I want to look at these two sections and, and sort of take them apart and see the precious truth that is here. And let's look first at what we can do with those in our lives who are our opponents. What we can do. I'm just going to read verses 24 and the beginning of 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, there are some important characteristics in these verses for you and I. And they're not only just crucial for our character, but the implication in this text that I want us to see is that they can serve as the very vehicles of being an effective witness to the opponents of our faith. God is sovereign in salvation, yes. But as we will see, Scripture over and over reminds us that He has sovereignly appointed the means toward His ends. And we, in our witness, and in our conduct in our witness, can be the factors in His saving process. I also want to mention that the the principle of these verses apply to every believer in this room. I, I need to mention in context that this is indeed about Timothy pastoring a church. That this is from the pastoral epistles. And uh, Timothy, as an elder, was encountering opponents to the faith from even the ranks of the church. So in a sense, uh, one could say these verses were primarily given for how teachers in the church should deal with those who oppose their ministry and the gospel they proclaim. However, as is true through much of 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul makes it clear more than once that Timothy was to live by these precepts as an example to the rest of the flock. Meaning the implication is that Timothy and those in ministry are not the only ones who do the work of the kingdom. They're leaders, yes, but they're given a pattern for others to have. And so the pattern given in these verses, these characteristics on what to do with opponents to the Gospel, this pattern gives all of us standards to live by in our witness. Because we all have opponents. And we all have unbelievers in our lives. And so when we read this first statement, the Lord's servant must be I want you and I to view ourselves as the Lord's servants. Because we are. That would preach in itself. You and I in this world are servants doing the work of ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Him that we serve in all we do, and it is Him we will give an account to. And in these verses... He starts by what we can do. 
And he gives four characteristics that I want to look at for us as his servants. Do you want to reach the unbelievers in your lives? Do you want to be an effective witness? Here are four characteristics for the servant of Jesus. We'll just go straight into it. Uh, Number one, out of all the things Paul could start with, Paul says that the Lord's servant is not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. The first point could be summed up, be kind to everyone. Number one, be kind to everyone. Now I know he says first, not to be quarrelsome. Uh, But that is actually to be joined with the imperative to be kind. Being quarrelsome, not being quarrelsome, is actually the, the negative to the positive trait of being kind. It helps inform what being kind looks like. In other words, to use other biblical language, we're to put off being quarrelsome and put on being kind. Now, we should carefully define what it means not to quarrel. There are some important things to consider as we parse this out. If you read through this epistle, it becomes apparent that this was a major issue in the church. It was likely a major temptation for Timothy to quarrel and to get sort of sucked in. It's mentioned throughout the book as the wrangling about words, as strife and disputes that are unprofitable. The verse right before this one calls it um, foolish controversies. It's important to note that um, the call not to quarrel does not mean never argue. It does not mean never argue. Argument, of course, is expected in any dialogue that we are to have in defending the faith, which we'll see shortly with the imperative to correct. Quarreling is rather a form of argument and an attitude of argument that brings more harm than good to the hearers. It is a a bad form of argument because it is usually over things that are trivial and not the hills to die on. It's missing the bullseye. It's, It's getting wrapped up in all these details and missing what is central. And it's a bad attitude of argument because it is, it's usually done in a manner that is harshly and overbearingly and pugnaciously. Now, yes, we are to be firm and courageous and zealous in defending the truth. Jesus had times where He was very firm and even angry righteously about truth. Not taking away from that. But such zeal is to be tempered with wisdom in every effort we can to be kind. Beware of being contrary for the sake of controversy. Don't always make it your aim to always turn others off and then sort of just pat yourself on the back and praise yourself as a martyr or something. Don't turn people off just because you know they're wrong. 
Uh, consider that Paul, the greatest evangelist in, in his time, if not ever, says that the first great recommendation for being a witness to the gospel is to be kind to everyone. Uh, this is the quality that so marked our Lord with his sinners. I think sometimes in our circles, because we know in contemporary churches, they present a Jesus that's overly soft and never controversial, that sometimes we emphasize that Jesus was firm and he was very direct and he was very blunt. And that's true. But let's not forget that his overall disposition was one of loving kindness. The disposition of Jesus towards sinners was marked by extraordinary kindness. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Matthew 12.20 quotes Isaiah to describe Jesus as the Lord's servant and quotes this, A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench. There's a reason sinners came to Jesus and stuck around. Let's not forget that our, our Lord was gentle and compassionate towards sinners. And we're to imitate Him in, his, in our kindness toward others. Kindness can go a long way for the sake of the Gospel. I like what J.C. Ryle says. This is a, a comment he made on the many times that Jesus was seen in having a feast with sinners. And he sort of applies it to Christians. I like this quote. J.C. Ryle says, the Christian who withdraws entirely from the society of his fellow men and walks the earth with a face as melancholy as if he was always attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the Gospel. A cheerful, kindly spirit is a great recommendation to a believer. It is a real misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. A merry heart and a readiness to take part in all innocent mirth are gifts of inestimable value. They go far to soften prejudices, to take up stumbling blocks out of the way, and to make way for Christ and the Gospel. End quote. I love that. A kind, merry heart often goes far to soften prejudices. First on the list for the Apostle Paul, be kind to everyone. Next, what else can we do? What else can we do for unbelievers? Number two, teach them the truth. The next characteristic in the verse is be able to teach. Now again, we know that contextually, he has in mind the teaching ministry of Timothy. Uh, but let's not forget that there is a sense, in, a sense in which all of us should be able to teach others the faith we proclaim. Uh, we can't just assume that being kind to everyone is going to get the job done. 
the testimony of Scripture is that people are not merely saved by our conduct. Uh, They're saved by a message. They're saved by words that we have to proclaim. You and I have things from the Lord to talk about with the unbelievers in our lives. And several of us perhaps even have shared those things. It's a plain fact from Scripture that if we are to see unbelievers saved, they must, one way or another, hear the Gospel. They must be warned of their impending judgment. They must be pointed toward Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. And it may be that you, the one who has been providentially placed in their life, that you in your example and in your words may be the one to teach them about God's gift of salvation. It could be that God has appointed for them to believe and you are meant to be a part of their testimony, which isn't even done yet. It may be you who leads them to Christ, or you might be one of many who are planting seeds throughout their life. We just don't know. Now this also often takes wisdom and careful consideration. I'm not saying we need to bombard unbelievers with words and just find ways to sort of steamroll them and just give them the Gospel and leave. We may not always have an opportune time to present the Gospel. It may not always be the right time. This is why I think in Colossians 4, Paul asks, for prayer that a door would be opened to him to proclaim Christ. Sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, the door is closed. And we need to look for opportunity from the Lord. And here's a convicting thought. We need to pray for open doors from the Lord. I've wondered in my own life if maybe I'm not praying for open doors because God might actually open one. I might have to speak. It might be laid right in front of me. And we need to be vigilant not to miss the doors He opens. Romans 10.14 How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The bottom line is, if you want to reach an unbeliever with the truth, they need to hear the Gospel. Or maybe you pray for them and someone eventually brings the Gospel. We don't know, but they need to hear the Gospel. And kindness and teaching go very well together in that process. I think it's no mistake that they're in these steps. Even though it sort of sounds cheesy, I think there's a general truth to the phrase that no one really cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It goes a long way. So we need to be kind to everyone. We need to teach them God's truth. Look at the next point. Patiently endure evil. What are we to do? Patiently endure 
evil. Uh, This one's important because I don't want to mislead you to thinking it's going to be this formula that always goes well. Uh, This is a very logical characteristic next on the list because the question might arise, uh, what if I'm kind and what if I'm very good at teaching them the Gospel, but they strongly resist? Walls go up. What if this unbeliever I long to reach is so turned off that they hate me? What if the rapport and the relationship I've built with them for so long becomes tarnished because now they view me in this negative light or they call me judgmental? They could do that. They might. If that's the case, first of all, you're in good company with a lot of God's people throughout the ages. How about starting with Abel? Hostility from sinners is expected. We love to review God's promises in His Word, and for some reason, the one that very seldomly, if ever, makes the list is you will be persecuted. It's a promise. You're also in company with the kindest, most capable teacher who ever walked the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. They may hate you as they hated Him and hated many of His other servants. It's been said that we're His hands and His feet in this world, but don't forget that His hands and His feet were pierced. And what are you as His servant to do? To, to put them in their place? To revile back? To patiently endure evil? Now, there's many reasons uh, for this exhortation that I don't have time to review. Uh, the whole New Testament talks about this theme of patient, patient endurance. Or we can go on, for example, and talk about how patiently enduring evil is a way to imitate Christ, as we just said. We could talk about how patiently enduring evil refines our faith and develops perseverance. We can talk about how patiently enduring evil reserves vengeance to God. Sounds like there should probably be a sermon on patiently enduring evil. There's a reason in this text that is another reason, and it's so precious you might miss it, and that would be tragic. Look at this reason for patiently enduring evil. According to this text, in the direction that it's going, one possible reason you should patiently endure evil is because you as a witness might not be done witnessing. Consider where this text is going with God granting repentance, which we'll see soon. They may oppose you now. They may treat you with evil now. But it could be that they repent later. They might repent later. And not only this, but it may be that your patient endurance, if you're following the flow of this text, it may be that the act of your patient endurance in the face of such hostility, it could be the means of softening their hearts to the Gospel you proclaim. 
Romans 12 says that when we overcome evil with good, we heap burning coals on their heads. It's hard to keep resisting someone who is continually patient and loving. So we patiently endure. Because this too is a witness to the radical love of Jesus. And there's a fourth characteristic that logically follows for those who oppose us. He says, correcting their opponents with gentleness. Number four, correct with gentleness. Each point here sort of gives a clarification for the other so that we're not missing anything. And here, it's filling in something that's important. As we patiently endure, it doesn't mean that we're passive. We just mentioned how we're to have patient endurance, and it may lead to the question of whether this means we're to be totally silent and and never answer back and just have a totally passive stance towards those who do us evil. And the answer is no. Uh, Not totally passive. Uh, Yes, we're, we're to endure evil without returning evil. We're to endure being reviled without reviling back. But we are to be active in using the weapons of spiritual warfare. We are active not in defending ourselves, but in defending God's truth. We're active not in attacking our persecutors, but we use truth to dismantle the strongholds of their false ideas. And we do it gently. One of the ways we shine light into the darkness is by gentle correction. Correction is in connection here with gentleness. Now we need to be careful here because it would seem as with most things, there is a tendency toward extremes. There is a tendency in our witness to maybe emphasize one at the expense of the other. There are some who will have the natural temperament to be so gentle that they they never engage in correcting ideas lest someone be turned off. I'm just going to be gentle. Never say anything. There are others who will naturally gravitate toward correcting others with rough edges at the expense of gentleness. And they take an unhealthy glee in in smashing down others' arguments and putting them in their place, proving they're right. The sons of thunder kind of mindset. And both of these are of the flesh. Both of these extremes need to be resisted. The biblical pattern that should mark our witness is to correct with gentleness. The phrase here in the text denotes the idea of power under willing control. 1 Peter 3.15 speaks to this in defending our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So they're always joined together. And the idea is that we are to be witnesses who are capable and approachable in conversation. 
who show courtesy and humility as we listen to our opponents and engage their points. This is a good witness. It shows the one who's engaging with us that their idea that they're not just talking to some armchair guru who wants to just debate them and win. It shows them they're dealing with someone who, who loves them enough to tell the truth, loves them enough to correct them, and is sincerely looking for their good. They may deny the truth you share with them, but may it be that they can't deny that the person who shared it with them truly cared. It may be that this is what softens them and prepares them for repentance. It may be. Which leads us to the most important part of these verses. We've considered what we can do. But now let's consider what God can do. What God can do. These four characteristics cover what we as believers can do. And they're limited. We can be kind to everyone. We can teach them the truth and proclaim. We can patiently endure evil if it comes our way and they are hostile toward us. We can correct any opposition with gentleness. But why? Why do we do these things? Why patience? Why gentleness? Why do we endure? Why be kind about it? Why do we act in these ways? How can we persevere in these things in the midst of sorrow and continued opposition? Why? Because God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by Him to do His will. I want you to think again of the unbelievers in your life. The opponents to the Gospel in your life who you long to see saved. And I want you to see them as the possible recipients of what's described in these verses. Think about what God can do. This second part of our passage can also be divided into four aspects. Really under the same sweeping concept. There's four different aspects of what God can do with anyone. And I think it's worth noting that that Paul could have just said, and God might save them, and left it at that. And we would have been amazed at that truth going, that's true. But rather... He does this thing where he gives multiple angles so I think we can actually visualize what that could look like for this person. And I think it's meant to motivate us to continually be kind and patiently endure. Let's look at these. Let's start with the first part. The first part, number one, of what God can do is He may perhaps grant them repentance. He may perhaps grant them repentance. 
This statement is a glorious comfort to us as His witnesses because it affirms that in all we can do, the salvation of anyone who comes across us is not under our control. We can be kind and we can labor to teach and explain and we can endure and we can correct, but it is only God who can move in the sinner's heart. It is only God who awakens and saves. And note, God saves based on His own will. It's important to remember that God owes no sinner salvation. And all of His judgments will be just and correct. There's a reason the repentance He gives is said to be granted. He grants the repentance because He is the Lord. He alone is God. He is the potter. We are the clay. Please note, this verse is not phrased as a guarantee. It doesn't say, do this formula. You know, be kind and teach and be patient. And, and then God will grant them repentance. It says God may perhaps grant them repentance. Now, someone might expect that if this verse is really to be comforting, precious truth, it should be phrased as a guarantee. But such thinking that wants a guarantee in order to be comforted is actually, it actually has a lopsided view of the whole situation. Let me, let me unpack that thought. It's a, a lopsided view if you're hoping for a guarantee. Here's why. Uh, demanding a guarantee in order to be comforted places God in a, in a position of being entitled to save the sinner. As though something is defect in Him if He doesn't act. God, I did this. Now you must act. Uh, such thinking that demands a guarantee in order to be comforted uh, treats the sinner not as a culprit, but as one who is merely a victim. And so it's important we get this right if we're going to have true biblical comfort. Uh, it's important in our, our, in our longing for unbelievers to be saved that we keep in mind the nature of this salvation, which is that it is reconciliation with God. We love the unbelievers in our lives but they are rebels against this God. And the shocking thing isn't that God doesn't save everyone, but rather the amazing thing is that He ever saves at all. Uh, the fact that God saves anyone is itself a glorious, outstanding cause for praise and comfort. So when we remember this clearly, we should actually be hearing this as God may save them as glorious as it really is. It is unspeakably amazing that God, who is just in all His judgments, that He may even accommodate and stoop down to your process of being kind and being teaching and loving them, that He may use that to save them. That there is a correlation there that seems to be common 
in many testimonies is a comfort to us. God, in His kindness, wants you to remember this when you consider your opponents. He wants you to know that as long as there is breath in their lungs, He can still save. And not only can save them, but He loves to put His glory on display and save lost sinners. And I think He does this far more often than we think He does. We're just so quick to assume who will never bow the knee to Jesus. I heard someone say once that we'll be shocked or surprised in heaven at who we don't see there and also very surprised at who we do see there. I think it would behoove us to regularly hear testimonies. We should be asking each other our testimonies. There are so many stories of terrible, hardened sinners who live a life of hostility to God and His people who one day have a change in their thinking and they turn to Him in repentance. Sometimes the story is that they hit rock bottom in the consequences of their sin and they're softened and turned to Him. Sometimes it is a tragic event that that sobers them and makes them think of their mortality before Him. Sometimes maybe they meet a certain Christian that God places in their life that is different from all the other Christians they met and leaves a, a special impression on their reasoning and conscience. And they believe. Sometimes a person might be saved after a whole lifespan has gone by, and in their last moments, with a mustard seed of faith, God saves in the eleventh hour because they say, have mercy on me, a sinner. God can do that. God does do that. We just don't know the end of someone's story. But there's something we do know. God may perhaps Grant them repentance. And to expand on this, he he continues with a second point. He may lead them to a knowledge of the truth. Number two of what God can do, He may lead them to a knowledge of the truth. I'm particularly thankful that the Spirit inspired this phrase in this set of verses. Because if I'm being honest, and I'm just saying, I talk to a lot of young people with... And they seem so immersed in the present culture with all these ideas. And the prevailing worldview of our age is so deeply ingrained in so many people, it's easy to assume it just can't be undone. I confess that I often have interacted with certain people, and you have probably too, and I find myself in this thinking pattern that says, there's just no way this person would ever consider Christianity. They just view its tenets and its ethics with such distaste, even as evil, and so archaic that there's just no way this way of thinking will be converted. I was convicted about that when I read this verse. How how little faith we have when we think this way. 
Are there any minds that God can't change? Consider the one who's writing this in the first place to Timothy. Paul the Apostle. If anyone was staunch in their intellectual and moral stance against Christianity, it was Saul of Tarsus who was zealous more than all his contemporaries to destroy the church, to rid the name of Jesus from the earth. And all Jesus had to do to change his mind was simply just show up. The whole world changed. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16. This one is also worth memorizing. 1 Timothy 1.16. Paul says this about himself. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. If Paul, the chief of sinners, the foremost opponent, if his mind could be changed by Jesus, then Jesus can show up to anyone and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. He may not show up in shining glory on a road like Paul, but don't you doubt that Jesus shows up. He shows up. And He becomes precious. And their eyes are opened. He can, He may, and He often does, show up. And the language in our phrase here in this verse is great because it says He may lead them to a knowledge of the truth. Lead them. You know, it may not be a sudden conversion. But it may be that through a continual thinking process over time, He is gradually drawing them closer to Himself without them even realizing it. I think of someone like C.S. Lewis, who is a skeptic. But more and more, the more he talked with contemporaries like Tolkien and others of the Christian faith, it began with intrigue. It began with looking into it himself. It began with resisting at times. But over time, God was at work bringing this mind to a saving knowledge of the truth. He was being led, and Jesus showed up. And he wasn't a liar, and he wasn't a lunatic. He was Lord. I think of the woman Lydia in Acts 16. Acts chapter 16 we have a traveling businesswoman. It's really random in the passage. She's selling purple dye. She's a Gentile. She hangs around the Jews because she's sort of a seeker. And one day it says as she's traveling, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Paul's talking about this Jesus who recently died and, and rose in Jerusalem as the Messiah. And suddenly God opens her heart and she thinks this could be true. And we don't know what it looked like if she had questions, if she had a conversation, if it was a process. But she received it. There are many testimonies, in fact all testimonies, in which God opens a person's heart to the truth. And He shows up. Jesus can still show up 
to people in your life who do not embrace him. And I would have us remember the context about the means God is using. When we are kind, when we are patient, when we're gentle, it makes more of an impression on a person's willingness to hear than we may think. And they might even discard it now, but it might be tucked away for later. It may be, Paul says, that God may use your loving approach to lead them to a knowledge of the truth. And this leads to the next phrase, which sort of gives another dimension to this. Number three, what God can do. God may cause them to come to their senses. Love that phrase. God may cause them to come to their senses. What a powerful statement. Because you know, we often talk to unbelievers in our lives and how often it perplexes us. Why can't they just get it? Why can't they just repent? And here we're reminded that unbelievers, our opponents, are not in their right spiritual mind. They're like a person who is in a stupor. Their thoughts and their emotions are all out of order and delusional. This is the, what's called the noetic effects of the fall. It impacts their reasoning faculties. <clears throat> They're not in their right senses. The world is in a frenzy against Christ. And they need to be awakened from it. And often what happens is that it starts to make us think that evangelizing is just an impossible task. Because oftentimes, their reasoning and their reactions to us and their opposition does not track with us when we're talking to them. In fact, many times, unbelievers will detract from what we're trying to impress upon them. And this is often what makes kindness and patient endurance and gentle correction such a difficult task. But we need to remember that God can take even the most senseless opponent and wake them up from the stupor. I think humans are more complex than we think. We just sort of summarize them as as being in this frenzy against Christianity, but God could cause every person, because He's placed eternity in their hearts. He's written His conscience on their heart. They could come to a place where they come to their senses. It is reasonable, after all, to fear the God who made them and provided a substitute. I think of some biblical examples of this. I think of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. You remember after God humbled him, the phrasing is this in Daniel 4.34. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, the king of Babylon. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. I just always loved that phrase. My reason returned to me. And God did that. God did such a work in this proud king that he realized, I'm not so great and divine as I thought. I'm I'm nothing. What am I doing resisting this God? Yahweh is God. This 
sober reason returned to him. I think of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son, when, when he had spent his lavish living, his inheritance, he hits rock bottom. And I love the phrase it gives from Jesus. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? And he rises and goes to his father. That phrase, and he came to himself. That's coming to your senses. Uh, One more vivid example. Uh, I think of the thief on the cross. Uh, This evil, senseless man was, was so senseless, he was mocking Jesus even while hanging next to him, along with the other thief. But as the crucifixion carried on, his heart begins to change as he beholds the pure example of Jesus. And he says to the other thief, do you not fear God? And he humbly calls to Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. Fearing God is very reasonable, especially as you're about to approach death. That's coming to one's senses. God can cause any soul to come to their senses. Don't get too disheartened when you see the delusions of those we come across. The final phrase here, and I'll make this quick, gives a bigger spiritual picture. The last thing God does is it says He may deliver them from the devil. Look at that. He may deliver them from the devil. It's here that Paul reminds Timothy and to us as readers, there's something much bigger going on than just our earthly perspective. It's not just human ideas and and human resistance that's happening in our opponents. It's not just this sinner who is spiritually dead. But there is a devil who is involved in the hearts of men. There's a reason why Christianity is singled out and opposed in the earth. People don't seem to have a a big fuss about Eastern religions and reincarnation and even Islam and some others, but Christianity gets attacked. That's because we know who's running the, the, the scene, behind the scenes. Satan is at work, and he's not sovereign, but he's given this leash by God to deceive the hearts of men. 2 Corinthians 4 says he blinds the minds of unbelievers from seeing the beauty and the glory of God in Christ. 1 John says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. These unbelievers that we come across, They need deliverance from doing His will. Uh, This agenda to oppose the Christian faith, to to scorn the truth of God, to act evil toward God's servants, uh, this is the will of the one who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And God, in His power and in in His amazing grace, can deliver any lost soul from His grip. And He's done this because He has provided 
the remedy in Christ. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus shows up, He can deliver a person as surely as He delivered those who were possessed during His ministry. It says they've been captured to do the devil's will. And the implication and the positive is that when they escape and belong to Christ, God can cause them to do His will. And what a wonderful thought that is when we consider the unrepentant ones in our lives. We see them doing the will of the devil. But could you imagine what it would look like to see that person doing the will of God? I think from this verse, that's a possibility he wants us to imagine. This is something that can motivate us all the more to long for their repentance and to call out to God for it. Remember that an unbeliever in their personal makeup, in their personalities and in their temperaments, they're just broken image bearers. But ponder what that would look like if God took that person with their personality that He made and turned it toward His will. Pray for those people with that in mind. What God might be able to do if that person was in the kingdom. It's a good thought. And guess what? God may perhaps do it. As I conclude this passage, I I feel that giving points of application has already been done in the passage itself. What should you do in light of what God can do? Be kind. Teach them. Endure evil if you have to. Correct with gentleness. And although it's not in this passage, I'm going to add one more application because it's mentioned in many other passages. Don't forget to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. As long as any unbeliever in our lives has breath, may we resolve that their soul will have the benefit of our constant prayer as long as they live. Many unbelievers don't have someone interceding for them. Maybe you're like Abraham who was interceding for those in Sodom. Or Moses when he interceded on behalf of the people. Maybe you're the one that God has placed to pray for their salvation. And He might do it. It's a convicting verse in James that says, you have not because you ask not. Pray for them. One of the most famous testimonies in church history is the conversion of the church father, Augustine sometimes pronounced Augustine. Augustine spent the first 30 years of his life in opposition to the faith he was taught from his mother, Monica. This is like in the 4th century. And he was, she was a devout Christian. And as he grew up, he became more and more unbridled in his immoral lifestyle. And it's said that every night, Monica would pour out her heart to God in prayer that her son would repent. 
And she kept seeing no response. And so she went to her pastor, Bishop Ambrose, and she poured out her heart, her heart to him about this. And it said that the bishop responded with the question, Monica, can a child of so many tears possibly be lost in the end? Now, of course, that's not completely sound theology. There are people who will not be saved in the end, even with our prayers. But it doesn't diminish that there often is a correlation that God delights to use with believers in the lives of unbelievers through their conduct, through their witness, and through their prayers. God does delight to use that process to turn a sinner toward Himself. And He did eventually grant Augustine repentance and used him mightily. And he has willingly answered the prayers of many who patiently and faithfully interceded for their loved ones. I leave you with this. Pray for big things to the God who is mighty to save. And continue to be a witness who shows the love of Christ. He may perhaps grant them Repentance. Let's pray. Father, I, I think about this passage and I think about how great Your power is. How little faith we often have. I pray that You would use us. Use us, Lord, to be Your witnesses. Use us to be Your mouthpiece in this generation and help us to be faithful and trust in You who is able to grant repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.